Hello all, and welcome to the fourth episode of this Dynasty Fantasy Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, CJ Friel, and on today's episode, I rank the rookie players that I have yet to rank so far, because frankly, I haven't wanted to, meaning my wide receivers 8-15, to and my running backs 3-10. through These are rankings that are potentially to be very controversial because these are players that I don't even prefer you know, in the class in general because they aren't in my top tier or two tiers, but it's also important to note that these seem to be the players I get questions about the most. So while I'm sure this episode will be rife with a lot of controversy for a lot of people and will likely have a lot of opinions that people may not agree with, I think it's a good time to break down some of these players and just look through their profiles and at least start some interesting conversations around these middle tiers. Before I get into any of that, though, I do want to make a quick note and say that I'm going to stop making definitive statements about the form moving forward. I do think what's going to happen moving forward, if I had to guess, is that the Substack and the YouTube will kind of diverge a little bit in the sense that the content overall will be the same, but the YouTube will have shorter cuts and be released over the course of the week, where the podcast, if there's one episode like this week, uh, will be released up front, and sometimes there will still be two episodes, because I really did like the format of the 40-minute episodes, but, you know, obviously this one went a little bit longer, so we'll just play it by ear, see how it goes. But it is important to note that if you're someone like me who watches podcasts in multiple forms, sometimes goes back and forth between a YouTube and a podcast app, the YouTube videos will not be up immediately for this entire episode. It'll be up throughout the week, probably wide receivers first, then running backs later, to whereas this is the entire thing put together. And so on that note, if you like the content, if you haven't subscribed, I do encourage you to do so. It means a lot to me, and I'll also just get on with the show. So just like I did with my first ranking set in my very first podcast that focused a lot more on the upper tiers, I do want to talk about a few specific things that go into scouting evaluation that might be important if you're listening to some of my work for the first time. Primarily, just three quick things. One, I'm not all film or all analytics. I believe that there is a marriage between the two of them. Number two, it's important to know that I do try to base my opinions not just on what I see, but the opinions of others. I do my best to bring the best possible information forward in terms of traits, but when it comes to scouting evaluation, sometimes you just have to make distinctions and determinations based on what you believe at a given point. That does not mean that they're all going to be accurate. That does not mean they're all true. It just means that this is the best information as I see it with a lot of research that I've done uh, to give you and to inform you on these players. And then number three, I hate the way most people do age. It's just a little bit of a nitpicky thing. I think basing the age on what day it is currently is just kind of a weird thing to do because it's always changing and players aren't going to play football for seven months. So I always set my age at all points of the year for all players at September 1st. And for prospects, I always set their prospect age to September 1st of their draft year. So if you hear me say like this player's 22 years and three months old and you go, well, they haven't turned 22 years old yet. That's because it's based on September 1st. All my ages are all based on and rounded to September 1st. So for this year, it'd be September 1st of 2024 for any player drafted in the 2024 cycle. And on that note, I do have a few wide receiver notes first, and after that, we'll get on to the rankings. Now, a couple of specific things about the wide receiver position first. It's important to note that the wide receiver position, more than many, maybe any other, is an analytics-driven position. Production itself is very important at the wide receiver position, and I believe that this is primarily because wide receivers, more than any other position, truly earn their reps and their targets. And by earning these targets, it helps to 
prove more at the previous level. This does not mean it's perfect by any means, but it is better than at other positions to look at stats or at least consider getting to stats as important thresholds for players. That's also important to mention that I like to use proportional receiving yards instead of receiving yards at the college level. Now, to be clear, I would never box scout just with this number regardless, but I find it to be a superior number. Now, by proportional receiving yards, I mean that I take the receiving yards that the player had and I take it out of the total receiving yards that the team had. This helps not only with system, including some systems that might be far more different than you see at the NFL level, making that kind of more important, but also there's a lot of things like pace of play that can be very different at the college level and that can some teams choke the clock, some teams very, play very fast. And it's also important to mention that some teams play 12 games and some teams play 15 games. So with all this in mind, I think it's more important to look at receiving yards as a proportion. And I also think when you do that, you sometimes see a couple different things and I think some of those things that you see can be very valuable and on one final note about how I scout wide receivers if you go back to the previous show I made a defense of this but while I find that most people in the fantasy community put a priority on height and then the secondary priority on weight and then a third priority on arm length I favor arm length just a bit personally but overall I like to use what I call the size triangle which is looking at all three of those measurements in a three-digit sequence where each digit is a proportion of each in terms or a percentile from each so say you know 30th percentile height, 46th percentile weight, 27th percentile arm length. Just for three round numbers, that would be a size triangle for a prospect. And so with that said, I want to recall my top seven wide receivers just to make it clear where we're starting here. And then I will be going to wide receiver 15 first and then making my way back up to wide receiver eight. So my wide receiver one is Marvin Harrison Jr. At wide receiver two, I have Malik Neighbors. At wide receiver three, I have Roma Dunze. At wide receiver four, I have Keon Coleman. At wide receiver five, I have Troy Franklin. At wide receiver six, I have Adonai Mitchell. And at wide receiver seven, I have Brian Thomas Jr. Now, those rankings are obviously very fluid as well, and as with these, but on that note, it's important to just get into it. So at wide receiver 15, I have Brendan Rice, the wide receiver from USC. So wide receiver 15 on my list is Brendan Rice, the wide receiver out of USC, who once played at Colorado and also has a very famous father. He's one of the younger prospects on this list in particular, but he would be older than most, if not all, of the top seven, just by how that kind of early declare analytical line is shaping up in my rankings right now. Uh, the big thing about Brendan Rice is that he does have a lot of the tools that you want to check. Six foot two, two twelve, thirty-two and five eighths inch arms. It doesn't matter what kind of size profile you look for, that's going to be a good one, right? And it's definitely not going to have any room for concern there. That said, the biggest concern I've had for Brendan Rice throughout the entire process is just the fact that he has six games this year under 50 yards, five under 40, and one was just one for 75 and a touchdown against Stanford. This is kind of a specific and technical way to look at it but the point is just that with Caleb Williams as his quarterback he constantly wasn't a incredibly impactful player at the collegiate level it's also important to note that while Caleb Williams was disappointing in a lot of ways and there's other podcasts including 
you know, different episodes of this one to talk about that. He did put up the kind of volume yards that Brendan Rice's numbers in this case aren't really defensible. In 12 games, there were a hair under 4,000 passing yards for the USC Trojans, and Brendan Rice had 20%. 20% is not a good number at all. I usually consider around 25% to be the minimum of what I'm looking for to consider somebody having at least a good production profile. Being below 20% is very bad, and again, while 2205, in terms of being 22 years, 5 months old as of September 1st, is fairly young in terms of this specific list of wide receivers 8 through 15. Analytically, it's not young enough for me to not worry about the production things. That said, he did show up nice at the Senior Bowl. He's shown some nice things on big plays. And again, it's all those physical boxes that he checks. There's a couple wide receivers I don't want to talk about yet because they are honorable mentions, and so they will be mentioned at the end, who are also physical, who some people might put in this last spot or above as well but I think Brennan Rice is the one I think I would bet on if I was betting on one of the physical archetypes. Up next I have Lad McConkey, the wide receiver from Georgia which probably marks my first ranking that has a chance to be fairly controversial. Lad McConkey is about five months older than Rice was right around that 20 he's getting up close to 23 years old at the start of the upcoming football season. While he is fairly tall both of the other aspects of size rank worse for McConkey, including his arm length, which is particularly bad at 30 and 1 8 inch. This, oh, and by the way, with Rice 2, these are verified by at least one unbiased source. So the 30 and 1 8 inch arm length, those are short arms for somebody who is that tall. To put that in comparison, Lad McConkey is in the 27th or 28th percentile in height and the 8th percentile in height arm length. Ladd McConkey is a player who, when I decided to do this 8-15 to rank, I would have thought he was much higher up. But as I continued to look through it, I just kept having problems with the profile itself, particularly for one that is this far down. Now, to be clear, there's things that I absolutely love about McConkey and that everybody will tell you about McConkey that are all really based around his ability to either route run or have elite ability to start, stop, and gear shift, depending on you know how you're phrasing it. All of these things I do believe are true, but at the end of the day, the biggest reason why wide receiver production matters so much is that it helps show that you use your traits to win. Ladd McConkey's production is not just bad, it is downright awful the more you dig into it. He has played in 39 career games, and yes, he has been injured for some of them, including played through injury in many of them, but he has 1,687 career yards. That is a very small number for 39 career games. Now, the first thing that people will say when you, when you mention that is that he played for Georgia, and Georgia spreads the ball around and all those things, and I get that. I, re- I really do. But in the games that Ladd McConkey was healthy and active in 2022, the Georgia Bulldogs threw for 4,438 passing yards. It wasn't like they didn't move the ball. With 762 receiving yards, that's only 17.2%. Again, that's a worse number than the Rice number I was just worried about. And you can say, well, maybe he's missing out on a lot of snaps because of second halves. Well, his yards per outrun is 2.16, which which isn't particularly bad, but it's certainly not great, especially for a prospect that is getting close to 23 years old around, not 
the time of the draft, but the time of the season begins, and just doesn't have the elite traits that you're you're looking for when you're talking about projectable wide receivers. Now, again, his yards per out run was much better within that 2023 sample, and and that's important to note. But again, to me, what you learn when you watch a wide receiver over time it, are things like, are people going to figure this guy out? Are cornerbacks going to get better at tracking how McConkey does certain things? You know, could he possibly have a learning curve that that maybe he's not actually as good at actually eluding defensive backs as we think he is? I understand why we believe that Lad McConkey can do it at a high level because, again, I do like his elite ability to gear shift or just simply route run, however you want to phrase it. But the fact of the matter is Lad McConkey just really hasn't done it at any kind of a relevant level. And so for that reason, I have him quite a bit further down my rankings. Another player I find to be kind of similar to this is Roman Wilson, but they're, they're fairly different in rank. But I will touch upon Lad McConkey a little bit again when I get to Roman Wilson. Up next, wide receiver 13, I have one of my bigger fallers at this point, and that is wide receiver Devontae Walker of North Carolina. Now, one thing to keep in mind when we talk about things like the Senior Bowl and fallers for the Senior Bowl, of which Devontae Walker is one of them, being a faller due to the Senior Bowl is partially potentially due to the Senior Bowl, but it's also about the reevaluation that occurs during that time period. Games like the Senior Bowl and the Shrine Bowl, they give us opportunities to focus on select groups of players that we can then reevaluate and reassess over a period of time where, say, there's less football. One thing to note about Devontae Walker is that his downward slide really didn't start at the Senior Bowl. It started with the last two games of the season. In those two games, Devontae Walker had 18 targets, 6 receptions, and did have 2 drops as well. Now, he might have the best speed score in the class, meaning like size-adjusted 40, and he is a vertical tree-wide receiver, or at least that's the way he was used consistently at North Carolina, and it does seem like he can potentially work in that role. But the Senior Bowl was this opportunity for Tez Walker in particular to prove that he could operate in some different areas. So while you don't want to make too much of it, especially because in, in just general drops, which were the problem he was quoted with having the most at the Senior Bowl, are a very fluky thing from time to time. It did ruin an opportunity that Tez Walker had to improve his stock or to prove to people that he could do uh, a couple of different things. So at the end of the day, I think the biggest problem with Tez Walker just goes to the big analytical and production things, right? He is over 23 years old on September 1st. He had huge games this year against Miami, Virginia, and Duke, but he was not consistent this year. And so his best season at this point is probably his Kent State year from the year before. And so that's a 900-yard season against Matt competition. So ultimately, while there are things I like like physically in Tez Walker, such as, you know, the ability to have that number one speed score potentially in the class. I'm just not sold on Tez Walker outside of being this pure vertical tree wide receiver. And so on that note, with three wide receivers down, I figure it's time for just a really quick recap. At wide receiver 15, I have Brendan Rice of USC. At wide receiver 14, I have Ladd McConkey of Georgia. At wide receiver 13, I have Tez Walker of North Carolina. And at wide receiver 12, I have Malachi Corley of Western Kentucky. The most notable thing that basically anybody will tell you right away about Malachi Corley is that he is a yak beast. Now, Western Kentucky, the biggest red flag that pops up right away is that that is one of the lowest FBS conferences you can play at in the Conference USA. 
However, it's important to note that, you know, the one thing that you worry about sometimes is how people translate physically when they're coming from lower conferences, and Malachi Corley was a member of Bruce Feldman's Freaks List. Now, if you're not familiar with what Bruce Feldman's Freaks List is, it's a piece on The Athletic that tries to rank the 100 most freakiest athletes in college football. Malachi Corley made this list, and one of the key things that was mentioned on this list was a reported GPS time of 23 miles an hour. Now, people often accuse these lists of being fluffed up a bit, and I want to say two things on that subject. One, they probably are. And two, it's also important to remember that at a glance, we might forget that there is a difference between a personal best and, say, something that you might do in two reps on a Thursday afternoon. Now, as high level as athletes get, as repeatable as the things they do are, it's just hard to know for 100% certain that somebody's two reps at the combine at any event are going to necessarily match their personal best. So I guess what I'm ultimately saying in this is that it doesn't really matter what these exact measurements are for Malachi Corley. This just seems to be a confirmation that physically he can translate to the next level. And then while we don't have any confirmations in terms of speed or GPS times, at least not from any data I have access to in terms of GPS times, Malachi Corley is 5'10 and a half, 215, and with almost 31-inch arms, according to the Senior Bowl. In particular, that 215-pound weight measurement is 85th percentile. The problem with Malachi Corley, though, is that at this lower level of competition, at Western Kentucky, in Conference USA, he had an extremely low dot or average depth of target. He is very much untested as a wide receiver working in deeper down the field or in intermediate routes consistently. So while Malachi Corley is this player who you can pencil in as being able to do one thing very well, and maybe for that thing alone he should be ranked higher up on this list, It's natural to be skeptical that he can do other things because, generally speaking, when players get put in very specific boxes at very low levels, that's not a good indication that they can be opened up a considerable amount at the next level. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but Malachi Corley is just this guy where everything beyond these short route yak game is a lot of a projection. He is kind of similar to Brendan Rice, 22 years, five months on my list as of September 1st. So he is one of the younger players on this list, you know, one of the younger players for not being an early declare. But at the end of the day, Malachi Corley is a player that I actually think will go pretty high in the NFL, at least compared to some of these guys. I do think he kind of has a a safe draft floor because I think some team is going to buy in to the fact that he's 215 pounds. I do think the speed is legitimate and he's got one thing that he can provide to a team. You know, I, I don't think he matches up like physically perfectly to this player or even analytically perfectly to this player, but from a draft capital perspective, I could see a team viewing him like Wandale Robinson, who went in the top 50. On the next note, the player who has risen the most for me since this podcast began, at wide receiver 11, Malik Washington, the wide receiver from Virginia. Now, I don't have a birthday on Malik Washington yet, but he is a fifth-year player, and he is five foot eight. so let's just get those two things out of the way right now. I also haven't brought this up too much, but obviously a lot of these players have been 
talked about in other shows. And so I don't want to get too repetitive with saying the exact same things. And the last show had Malik Washington in the name of it. And so I obviously talked about him a good bit in that. In order to kind of change up some of the recap, though, I want to specifically talk about Malik Washington through the lens of comparison. Because while it is easy to see this comparison as being, you know, potentially clickbaity or or something of that nature... There really are a lot of comparisons when you dig into it between Malik Washington and Tank Dell. Aside from just being five foot eight, neither player broke out in terms of a higher level in college football until their fourth season. Now, Malik Washington only had 700 yards in that fourth season, but going back to the proportions, that was 27 or over 27% of his team's receiving yards, and only Evan Hall had more than, say, 250 receiving yards on the team. So Malik Washington was a big part of the proportions of his Northwestern offense in year four. And then both players, in terms of Dell and Washington, have slightly longer arms than their height. Now, Washington's arms are slightly lower in the 7th percentile. Dell's are in the 14th. But these are pretty much the same thing uh, The for smaller wide receivers having long arms. I have found is more often to generate success at the NFL level. And again, just watch the last podcast if you're uh, confused by what I mean by that. It's also important to note that at his peak season in his final season, Tankdale had 1,398 yards while Washington had 1,426. But Dell's team threw for 4,082 yards when Washington's only threw for 3,010. The difference in proportion there is pretty significant. It's also important to note that while Tankdale does have slightly longer arms than Washington, Washington weighed in at 27 pounds heavier than Tankdale. Tankdale was in the first percentile in weight, while Washington is in the 27th. Washington shined at the Shrine Bowl practices, and so when you consider that this is a player who had 47.4% of his offensive production at the ACC level, this is a player that you really do see where the comparison comes from. Because a lot of times, you know, there, there are certain players, even players in this class that are smaller, that I don't like the comparison to Tank Dell and the main reason I say that I don't like the comparison to Tank Dell when people ask me why I don't like it is because what makes Tank Dell good is not being small. What makes Tank Dell good is is all the other stuff. You know, being small is obviously a part of who he is, but it's not what makes him good necessarily. Washington has all these same things in terms of he's he's very physical and tenacious at the point of attack. He can get contested catches. He can go up and come down with the ball. Uh, he's also probably a better yak receiver in terms of just projecting from the previous level. He has a lot of misforced tackles and in terms of projecting to the next level, it is possible at least to see that continuing when you consider that 27 pounds is a big deal for a guy who's five foot eight. Malik Washington has a very nice BMI overall, especially for a wide receiver to be able to shake and bake some of those corners. Now, Malik Washington is a player who I have higher than anybody else I see that, say, isn't on very many guys' lists in day two. So for that reason, I do feel a little bit like I'm on an island with Malik Washington. I will also say that prior to the draft and prior to getting day two capital, I completely dismissed Tank Dell last year, and that was one of my biggest mistakes. So I think it's important for me to note that as much as I talk about how other teams shouldn't chase Puka Nakua's or things like this, I'm worried that I'm chasing a Tank Dell a little bit, but I also believe that the justification is there significantly just because on paper, I would argue that Malik Washington's 
profile is better than Tank Dell's. Now, don't get me wrong. If you were in a league where they they were both tradable assets right now, there's no way I would trade Tank Dell from Lake Washington. But when I consider the fact that he doesn't have the significant BMI red flag, he played in the Power 5 conference, and he had a higher proportion in that Power 5 conference of at 47.4%, I could definitely see a world where just on a lot of models and on paper and in a lot of different perspectives, Malik Washington is the better prospect on paper, at least going into the draft. So Malik Washington is this player who has dominated when given the opportunity. His first three years, he had significant excuses that did get in the way of him being able to dominate. And with the peak season being as spectacular as it is, at a position where production is so important, I have Malik Washington all the way up at my wide receiver, 11. And so just to recap what I have so far, I have Brendan Rice at wide receiver 15, Ladd McConkey at wide receiver 14, Devontae Walker at wide receiver 13, Malachi Corley at wide receiver 12, and Malik Washington at wide receiver 11. So keeping in mind the numbers are a little bit awkward on this list because we're doing 8 through 15 because the top 7 were the ones I'd ranked before. Starting into my top 10 on this list, we start with wide receiver 10, Jalen Polk of Washington. One of the first things that comes to mind to talk about with Jalen Polk is just the fact that he seems to be one of the guys that seems to get consistent buzz around NFL circles from different publications, which is something that I look for. By which I just mean, he's not necessarily always ranked in the first round, but he's someone that I see a lot of respect for and not a lot of people pushing down necessarily. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he will get drafted highly, but if you asked me to guess on this entire list of 8-15... through between who I think would go in the top 50, say, the only player I would put at the same odds as Jalen Polk would be Xavier Worthy, who's about to come up in a couple spots. A couple of big things to note about Jalen Polk is that he has very good size and he's a very strong player at the point of attack. In fact, I think he wins in a number of phases at the point of attacks, which is what really intrigues NFL teams, by which I mean he wins at release points, he wins at catch points, he often wins at breaking tackles. And so these are things I think teams are really keying in on with Jalen Polk. It's important to note, though, that Jalen Polk's overall production is really not all that good, and it's particularly not all that good when you look at it, again, through this proportional lens. So he had a fairly decent season in his freshman season, at least what you expect a freshman to do at Texas Tech, and then he decided to transfer to Washington. At Washington, he really didn't do much for his first two years, and a key important detail is that in year three, as in 2022, Jalen McMillan put up far better statistics than Jalen Polk with 38 more receptions, 400 more yards, and three more touchdowns. Jalen Polk himself had fewer than 700 yards, so that's a pretty big difference between the two. It's also important to note that Jalen McMillan is a member of this class and not in this top 15. While 1,159 yards looks very good, when you compare that to a proportion that goes over 5,000, it gets to 22.5%. That is not a number we are looking for. Now, one thing to know about Jalen Polk's production profile is that he did have two complete zeros in back-to-back games against Oregon State and Washington State. Maybe injury was part of that, maybe it was the weather that was affecting those games, and Penix was bad in those games as well. But it is worth noting that he got complete zeros, and there were plays that Penix got him the ball in 
areas where he could catch it and they resulted in drops now again with all the weather there's a lot of inconsistencies happening there so it just is important to note this because those two games had a significant impact on the proportions for Jalen Polk so once again for Jalen Polk it is the different points of attack that he wins at that are so intriguing to me he has good size and Compared to a Brendan Rice, he does have a lot better production. So while the production is not great, and I don't think it looks great under the scrutiny that I like to put under production, it is still important to note that it's better than a lot of the players that we're projecting with these bigger projectable frames. And so Polk has that and the ability to win in a few different ways, and so that makes him my wide receiver 10. Up next at wide receiver 9, I have Roman Wilson of Michigan. Roman Wilson is another one of the older players on this list and will be 23 years old before September starts, but I find myself very intrigued by his set of tools. Now, to be clear, Roman Wilson is also a bit of a projection, kind of like I talked about with Vlad McConkie earlier. The big projection with Roman Wilson is that we've really never seen him in a high target role. Roman Wilson spent all four years at Michigan, and in the first three of them, he had under 40 targets. In year four, he had between 60 and 70, which is a substantial increase, but ultimately not a lot. And in terms of individual games, he went over four targets twice, with one of those games being against a mid-major or a group of five team. However, the 789 yards that Roman Wilson had were proportionately a significantly higher rate than Ladd McConkie's 700-yard season, where Ladd McConkie's season was 17% of his team's receiving yards, Roman Wilson's was 24%. And while Ladd McConkie's 700-yard season came with a 2.1 yards per out run, Roman Wilson's was almost 2.7. That said, I still do believe that it's important to look at Roman Wilson as a projection, because any player who in four years of college football, at his peak season, had really one game of significance over four targets, is a projection. And it's kind of interesting to me because the the wide receivers that we usually think about as project wide receivers are players like Xavier Leggett, who didn't crack my top 15, Brendan Rice, who did, uh, Devontae Walker, you know, guys who are big, long. Those are the guys we usually think of projection wide receivers. And in this draft, it seems like some of the projected wide receivers or the, the project wide receivers that are getting the most hype are Ladd McConkie and Roman Wilson. And I get why some people would think of them as not projects just because of the fact they're considered to be technically proficient in terms of route running and things of this nature. But the fact of the matter is, to me, they haven't really proven the ability to separate even if they can you know even if they can do it in a vacuum even if they can do it on air they haven't proven the ability to be productive so to me they are projects because you're projecting the volume into these players and that what's intriguing to me about that is that I'm wondering if that's a reaction to the Puka Nakua thing because that that is what Puka Nakua is Puka Nakua is a project wide receiver who does not align with a typical project wide receiver he he wins with his separation and route running and he was a project because he played fewer routes in four years of college football than he played this year with the rams now regardless of anything else i really doubt that any wide receiver in the next couple of years turns out to be a Puka Nakua for several reasons. But I do think one thing to keep in mind about Puka Nakua is that for some reason, I think sometimes when a guy isn't very big, we sometimes consider that the same as guys who are somewhat undersized, by which I just mean Roman Wilson's size triangle is 16th percentile height, 18th percentile weight, 
and 10th percentile arm length. Puka's is 60th, 49th, and 36th. Basically, Puka Nakua is substantially bigger in a number of percentiles, including being above average in height, average in weight, and at least 36th percentile in arm length. So ultimately, I do see Roman Wilson as a project wide receiver to an extent or a projection at the next level because we've never seen him in a high volume role but i do have a wide receiver nine because i believe in the projection a little bit once again all of these players are fairly likely to be busts just by the nature of the position itself so keeping that in mind a player like roman wilson who separates well has really good deep speed has slightly longer arms than lad mcconkey so he gets a little bit further away from that red flag area and also doesn't have the same production red flag that I have with Lad McConkey because the peak season is significantly better. He's checking a lot more boxes. I really like him as this projectable wide receiver. I think he has real real clean hands, can be physical at the catch point for his size. So I really like Roman Wilson in this projection role a lot more than Lad McConkey. I do think both are pro- projections and I do think it might be smart to move in the direction generally of, of making project wide receivers based more on Puka Nakua than, you know, say worse versions of DK Metcalf but regardless of any of that I think Roman Wilson is my wide receiver nine and a guy who I'm willing to take a bet on at this point. Up next the youngest player in this class by about a full year the only early declare on this list my wide receiver eight Texas wide receiver Xavier Worthy. Aside from being the youngest player in this class and at 2104 on my age list, he's also one of the youngest wide receivers I've evaluated over the last three years. Xavier Worthy is also the fastest player in this class. Now, I mentioned other players that might have a higher speed score, which adjusts 40 times by weight, and that's certainly true that a lot of players on this list might have better weight-adjusted 40s, but when it comes to pure, raw speed, there is no one in this class quite like Xavier Worthy. Another thing that Xavier Worthy has under his belt is an elite freshman season. He had 2.6 yards per route run as a freshman and had a great proportion of his team's freshman production. And while I do have some concerns about him at physical points of the game, it is really hard to doubt his ability as a screen threat. He can take any pass to the house at any point. However, it's also important to note that the 2.6 yards per route run mark a career high and a significant career high. While the 1.9 yards per route run in his sophomore year was excused somewhat by a broken hand, he only jumped up to 2.1 as a junior, and this was a year where you would have expected it to be far better with Quinn Ewers at quarterback. The big concern I have is that there is something on Xavier Worthy's film that bothers me more than any other wide receiver in this class, and that is just his ability to play with strength and at the point of attack. Xavier Worthy is just not a very strong point of attack player to me, particularly at the catch point, and when you look at some of his game films, you know, the BYU game was the one I mentioned uh, in the previous podcast when I mentioned this. It's available on YouTube, and it's the one that comes to mind just because he had so many targets in that game. But you can see it throughout his tape, and I also think that's why you see him getting mocked more and more often in the second round. To be honest, when I started this list, I had Xavier Worthy a bit lower because that one thing in particular is just a hard thing for me to justify ranking him highly on. That said, as much as I'm analytical on these prospects, I also try to be self-analytical. And because this is such a different thing than anybody else, and because there are so many things that I can point to that Xavier Worthy does well, because there are things analytically that he scores so high on, and because there are things on a football field with his speed that I feel like I can buy into, 
Xavier Worthy still comes in as my wide receiver eight. And so with Xavier Worthy at wide receiver eight, I now have a full list of one through 15. At wide receiver one, Marvin Harrison. At two, Malik Neighbors. At three, Roma Dunze. At four, Keon Coleman. At five, Troy Franklin. At six, Adonai Mitchell. At seven, Brian Thomas Jr. At eight, Xavier Worthy. At nine, Roman Wilson. At 10, Jalen Polk. At 11, Malik Washington. At 12, Malachi Corley. At 13, Devontae Walker. At 14, Lad McConkey. At 15, Brendan Rice. And with some honorable mentions still to come. So for those honorable mentions, the big controversy that's not on this list most likely will be Xavier Leggett. I've really never been a big fan of Xavier Leggett. And Xavier Leggett's just one of those players that is really hard for me to place just because as somebody who really spends a lot of time with a lot of these players ahead of schedule and, and before they come into the public eye a lot of the times, players like Xavier Leggett who have such a small peak are very hard for me to deal with because they come essentially out of nowhere and then they don't stay really. You know, Xavier Leggett didn't consistently sustain the high-level performances. He had some good ones, but he also had some fall-off performances. He weigh, he measures in at six foot one instead of six foot three at the Senior Bowl, and he doesn't have a good day there overall. And so it's not that I'm necessarily feeling like I'm overreacting to these small things so much as it's just I don't necessarily feel like the profile itself is built on all that much. I feel like it was built, you know, very quickly overnight, and that's why kind of feels like it's blowing down so easily, at least for me. You know, Xavier Leggett has a lot of tools. He's very intriguing. And like I said at the very beginning, and like I will continue to say on this show throughout however long I end up doing this show, I will be wrong a lot. And I might be wrong on Xavier Leggett, but he is a controversial player that is even not my number one honorable mention because my number one honorable mention would probably be Javon Baker. Javon Baker is another athletic player. He played on a very rush heavy team. And so you kind of hope that you see some development as he gets into the NFL level. Uh, He played for the university of central Florida. Jalen McMillan, who is mentioned with Jalen Polk as they are teammates at Washington, is another wide receiver I have on the honorable mentions. Uh, He succeeds very well underneath, and he's a very intriguing player on that level. I'm just not sure if he has the other aspects of his game as much as some of these other players. Uh, Johnny Wilson, very large, very long wingspan, has concentration drops that have bothered him and plagued him throughout his entire career. Don't really know what to do with him, but just someone that I, I keep an eye on uh and then ricky pearsall uh if you want to hear more on ricky pearsall i did talk about him a couple shows ago he's just a player i don't like as much as the market right now and that is all i have for this wide receiver position and while i transition from the wide receiver position to the running back position i just want to thank everybody for joining me today and just say if you have gotten anything out of this if you found it informative if you found it even entertaining i would like to encourage you to subscribe to the substack channel it means a lot to me it helps me know the direction to grow things it gives me some sense of feedback if you have negative feedback i would also encourage you to send that my way because it's just if you're listening for one for this long and have feedback that is feedback that i am intrigued by um, because i just want to know how I can make the show better moving forward. So again, if you haven't subscribed to the Substack, I would just encourage you to do so. And on that note, time to move on to the running back position. 
So while a lot of the basic principles with the positions are similar, there are some key differences in the evaluation of wide receivers and running backs that I want to get to here. Primarily, while the wide receiver conversation started talking about how analytical the position is, to me, running back is the most traits-driven position. In particular, running back is the position more than any other position where, with draft capital pending, I'm willing to take a player just based on basically flashes. Because if a player shows the things I'm looking for, particularly burst of balance in the physical game, I'm willing to buy into them pretty easily. Now, again, my eye is imperfect, and eye is more important in running back than at wide receiver to me. And so it's also important to note that I try to back up all my beliefs with the beliefs of others as well, but this does not mean they're going to be perfect, and so there are probably going to be things I say about some of these players based on, you know, how fast I think they are, how well they break tackles, how well their balance works, some things about their traits that you're just probably not going to agree with. And so all I have to say on that is you might be right. I might be wrong, but this is the best information that I have found to come forward with at this time. Vision is also an extremely important trait. It's just one that I find to be even more subjective and harder to grade. So I consider it very important on a theoretical level, but I don't end up looking for it quite as much in terms of where I'm putting guys in tiers necessarily, because for one, I find it harder to judge subjectively. And on another level, I just think that burst and balance are things that really get a lot of players on the NFL field and when combined with draft capital can get you a long way. On the first show, I also forgot to mention this when I went over the running back position criteria, but it's also important to mention that receiving is obviously incredibly important. Now, raw receptions are important because it shows that you have a potential to be a three-down player, but the ability to turn catches to runs, the ability to be an actual high-level pass catcher, the ability to be somebody that an NFL team is going to look at and say, I want you catching the ball regardless if you have the ball on first and second down, that's what you're going to want want to look for more than anything i think the biggest thing to know about receiving backs and fantasy is that sometimes people really get into this i want to see this guy catch because i just want him to theoretically have the ability to get 400 touches including 70 receptions and that's just probably not going to happen like it could happen but it's just probably not going to happen in today's nfl so you really want a guy, if you're looking for someone who you want to translate as a receiver, you don't just want a running back you like who can catch the ball. You want a guy who is good at catching the ball. And then it's also important to note that age is important, not necessarily from a longevity perspective, because longevity at running back is a crapshoot anyway, but it is important to know how old someone is compared to their competition at a physical sport or at a physical position rather and it's also important to note that a lot of running backs peak very early so you want to see that ascension happen very early and if it doesn't happen you kind of want to know why and then just the one thing statistically I will note is that I do care about how a player does uh, in regard to their team because obviously uh, system, coaches, things like this can really impact yards per carry. And so, you know, when you see a coach in a system putting up nine yards per carry running back for 10 years and then you're looking at a running back and you're really into him, you're really excited about him, and then you notice that, you know, you notice that, what you have to realize is that it, that's the point where you really have to grade them on the traits. You don't dismiss the production, but you have to really focus on the burst, the balance, and if you can, and specifically if you can get the all-22s, the vision. So to be clear, the only two running backs I have ranked are Trey Benson at number one and Jonathan Brooks at number two. 
Though once again, I'm going to be starting at the back with number 10. So my running back 10 is Dylan Lowby of New Hampshire. Dylan Lowby is a player who got a lot of buzz in the Senior Bowl, including a report that he had the highest miles per hour time. He's a player who had a very good receiving profile in college, but he played for an FCS team and only played one game against the FBS. Now, for anyone who's a little unclear on these distinctions, that means he played at a college where the average team that he played was outside the top 130. And obviously farther than that too, but the point is that the FBS has over 130 teams, and Dylan Lowby's team was not one of them. Dylan Lowby is also a sixth-year senior, and while he does have many traits that you look for in terms of the first step, in terms of a downfield receiver, he does have some shorter arms, which is just something notable for someone you project as a receiving back. I did mention a couple shows ago that he plays in the slot some, but it's few and far between, but I think I was probably too harsh on that. In his final season, they did work him around the formation a good amount, and so it's worth giving him credit for that. That said, I still stick by the main point there, which is that the main concern I have when someone like this breaks out is that there's going to be natural comparisons to someone like Austin Eckler. But I might be cherry-picking, it's just Dylan Lowby's worst games are not the kind of games that you saw from players like that. Austin Eckler had 2,000 yards in a 10-game season. Dylan Lowby had a little over 100 yards per game, but nowhere close to 200. And then he had at least three games with nine targets and 31 or fewer receiving yards, and a fourth game with seven targets and 37 receiving yards. Now, this is cherry-picking a player's worst games, and I wouldn't do that on almost any level except for the FCS, and except for a position like running back that is so physical. So while it is cherry-picking a little bit and speaking towards specifically what he did the worst or his worst days, it's important to note that I really wouldn't expect a running back who you think has any even chance of being an Eckler or Aaron Jones to be that bad in four games, frankly, against the FCS. Obviously, he doesn't have an FBS team himself around him, but it's still notable that at this physical position, you would just expect a little bit more. And then if I didn't bring this up before, I don't have an age on Dylan Lowby, but he is a sixth-year senior because he started for New Hampshire in 2018 or joined the football program in 2018. So that means he is probably one of the oldest running backs that I've ever evaluated. Up next at running back nine, Marshawn Lloyd, who has played at both USC's in his career, most recently at Southern California. Marshawn Lloyd is 2308 on my age scale, which makes him over 23 and a half at the start of the season. When I spoke before about excuses for what takes players to get to the NFL for so long, Marshawn Lloyd is a player who suffered a substantial knee injury early in his career. He was a top prospect before that point, and so this pedigree is important to note because one of the arguments that's been around Lloyd's head for the last few years, as he's not come out into the NFL but has continuously been a prospect people have talked about, is the idea that as he gets away from surgery, he might slowly improve. He is 217 pounds as of the Senior Bowl weigh-in, and so he checks a decent amount of boxes physically there as well. The big issue with Marshawn Lloyd is that while he was very efficient at Southern California, he was not necessarily great in terms of volume because he just wasn't allowed to be. In part, that is because USC rotates their running backs as part of their system, but it's still important to note that Marshawn Lloyd was held under 10 carries in 7 of 11 games. So Marshawn Lloyd is the player who has the pedigree, the potential to rise, and has at least been efficient, even if he hasn't been necessarily efficient at a high volume. And for these reasons, Marshawn Lloyd is my running back nine. 
Up next, running back eight, potentially the most controversial name in my running back list based on where I have him ranked, Braylon Allen, the running back from Wisconsin. First, the most unique thing about Braylon Allen, and the thing that people seem to talk about the most, his age. Braylon Allen on my list is 20 years, 7 months, as of September 1st, rounded to the nearest month. The youngest player before Braylon Allen was 20 years, 11 months, and no other player in this class is under 21 years. Aside from that, it's not just the age that Braylon Allen is now, it's the fact that Braylon Allen started, played significantly, and put up a huge year as a true freshman at Wisconsin, which would have made him 17, turning 18 in late January. That said, from the most basic analytical perspective, my biggest problem with Braylon Allen can be summed up by the fact that he had those big years, or at least that big year in his freshman year and a big year in his sophomore year as well, but he never really took a step forward. Compared to a 17-year-old or 18-year-old where the expectations are low, the season is spectacular. If you're just comparing it to the peak season you look for in a standard running back prospect, it doesn't really come up to standard. It's also worth noting that running backs in Wisconsin's history have not just had 1,200 yards and 12 touchdowns like Braylon Allen did, but 2,000 yards and 25 touchdowns. Guys like Monty Ball, Melvin Gordon, and Jonathan Taylor had these kind of numbers. From an archetype perspective, Braylon Allen is a player that I see as a pure two-down player at the next level. While he did get a lot more receptions this year, he was very unsuccessful on these plays. Early in the season, when they tried to feed him the ball a lot, he did catch most of the passes, but he did not have a lot of yards. And part of the problem is probably the transition to ball catcher to ball carrier. So because of that low success rate, Braylon Allen kind of becomes the quintessential example of what I said earlier. I understand why people like the fact that Braylon Allen catches passes, because theoretically you can look at that and say, okay, if someone is willing to give him 400 touches and 90 targets, he can catch them and get me one point per catch. But in a more realistic scenario, he's just not good enough at catching the ball to make a team want to let him do it. At least that is my read on how he played this year. The big example that Braylon Allen gets compared to, at least by fans, is Derrick Henry. But I think the big difference is that Derrick Henry very, very quickly builds up speed and power. I'm not sure Braylon Allen builds up speed and power as quickly. It's not that he's not powerful, it's not that he's not fast, but if he can't get to those speeds, if he can't get to that power level fast enough, he's more easily taken down and Aside from that, I find Braylon Allen doesn't have the little bits of wiggle or nuance in the open field that many of these other running backs do. I find a lot of these running backs do a lot better at manipulating angles and getting past defenders downfield. And while you can say Braylon Allen was extremely young and banged up during this season, and potentially maybe this would have been the year he had a breakout, Ches Malusi was playing just about as well as Braylon Allen in those early games. And against Washington State, Braylon Allen was held to 7 carries for 20 yards and 13 touches for 32 yards early in the season. This is a Washington State run defense that, by the end of the season, gave up 150 rushing yards per game, so it wasn't as if they were a juggernaut on the season. Ultimately, Braylon Allen is a player that I'm almost scared to rank too much lower than this because of the fact that he is under 21 years old and because he's so significantly under 21 years old and maybe this season would have been a peak season or rather maybe next season would have been a peak season and that should have been his junior year. But at the end of the day, without having seen the peak season yet, it's not something I'm willing to project on a player just because they had 1,200 
and 12 because if Braylon Allen played one more year and never got past 1,212, all of a sudden he's just a player with a fairly mediocre peak season. So to recap where I'm at with the running backs so far, I have Dylan Lowby at running back 10, Marshawn Lloyd at running back 9, and Braylon Allen at running back 8. Next up, the other player that I think is probably tied for most controversial on this list, running back 7, Blake Corum from Michigan. So right away, the two things that stick out with Blake Corum is that he is one of the older running backs on this list at 23 years, 9 months, and he is also overall someone that is probably seen as a fringe athlete. Speaking towards the overall beliefs I have at the position, with big traits being everything, being a fringe athlete is a very scary thing. It's a combination of size and his speed, which is solid, but ultimately not in the higher tier of the NFL level. I do think an interesting comparison for Blake Corum is kind of like a Kyron Williams, just because what made Kyron Williams so good last year was that he did every little thing right, and I think that's what Blake Corum gets so much credit for from someplace like Michigan, because you know he hits the right holes most of the time, he takes care of the football, he's just a very assignment-oriented player, at least that is my perception of the situation. That said, assignment football is generally not the thing that pushes value up. It's explosive plays and explosive passing plays. It's also worth noting that Blake Corum's 2023 was significantly worse than the two previous years, and maybe that is a return from an injury, and you know a lot of people excused it because of the high number of touchdowns. When you just look at the fact that his yards per carry was 4.8 in 2023 and 6.2 between the previous two years, that aligns with what I was seeing in my own eyes, that he just did not have that many explosive plays this year. The big comparison, I think, physically that sticks out to me for Blake Corum, and I do actually think this might potentially be generous, is Devin Singletary. That said, if he can fit into that Devin Singletary mold, I could see him having that kind of impact and role at the next level, particularly as a 1A or 1B in a backfield like that. It's also worth noting that the Jim Harbaugh conversation is not just a joke. Now, to be clear, it is very unlikely to happen. It is a theoretical. But considering what all the things I just said about Blake Corum, you know, needing someone to believe in him, I guess you could say Blake Corum needs someone to believe in him like Jim Harbaugh believed in him. So yes, going to the Chargers would be a huge deal for Blake Corum's value. Now, to be clear, a fifth round pick to the Chargers is not the same as a second round pick to somewhere else. You'd rather him drafted high than drafted to the Chargers. But if you can't pick where he's going to get drafted, you want him drafted to the Chargers. And so that's all I have on Blake Corum. Up next, my running back six on this list, Audric Estime of Notre Dame. What's really interesting about Audric Estime is that I almost feel like there's a Braylon Allen comp developing in my head, which is a weird thing to say. But I guess my point is that sometimes in fantasy, it feels like we pay too much attention to an outlier just for the sake of being an outlier. And to respect Braylon Allen, again, it is crazy that he started in college football as young as he did. But Braylon Allen's age is a conversation that seems to come up all the time. But Audric Estime is the third youngest player I've ever evaluated. Now, he is about five months older than Braylon Allen, but he is still incredibly young. He turns 21 around the time the season starts. He has a better peak season, 227 touches, 1,483 yards, 18 touchdowns. That's over 100 more yards and seven more touchdowns, or six more touchdowns, rather, than Braylon Allen's career highs. He has more wiggle and shake in the open field. He's a better misforced tackle creator, according to myself, as well as numbers from PFF. 
So it's interesting to me that Braylon Allen gets all this consideration as this player who is young, big, physical, uh, and could potentially be this this bowling ball guy at the next level. Because Audrick estimated to me, now obviously I don't love him, love him, because he's my running back six here. You know, it's not like I think he's one of the best running back prospects I've ever seen. But I do think he's he's closer to what people think Braylon Allen is than Braylon Allen. He's a young player. He breaks tackles better. He's looser in the open field. I, I think he's a slightly better pass catcher too. So I don't have too much to add outside of that to Audric Estime. I don't think he has the game-changing speed or the natural pass catching, even though I think he's better than Braylon Allen. I don't think he's so natural at it that a team will you know, look towards him in a passing situation, at least by default. But he is a guy who has great size that can take a NFL workload. He's shown some really interesting things at the college level. He's just not the fastest guy or the most explosive bursty guy. And that is a big deal. But Audric Estime has enough tools to make him my running back six. And so on that note, since we have five down, even though we did do a recap a couple running backs ago, I will once again go through the running backs really quickly with number 10, Dylan Lauby, number nine, Marshawn Lloyd, number eight, Braylon Allen, number seven, Blake Corum, number six, Audric Estime, and now number five, Bucky Irving. Bucky Irving, 22 years old as of September 1st, and a very small running back. Now, the 190 that he gets listed at makes it sound like he's getting close to 200, but to my personal eye, the frame that he plays at on the football field, I just have a hard time believing that he should be considered a back close to 200 pounds. Now, to be fair, we have been seeing more and more often in the NFL that smaller running backs can translate. Last year, we had both Devon Achan and Keaton Mitchell, who were elite speed demons and very small running backs. However, it's that first thing that does give me just a little bit of pause with Bucky Irving. To be very, very clear, it is not that Bucky Irving is not fast. He is fast. He's very fast. But I'm not sure he's Keaton Mitchell and Devon Achan fast. And in that context, I do worry a little bit because of the smaller stature and size. And we did have smaller backs like Deuce Vaughn come out last year and have a landing spot that people were very intrigued by and ultimately do nothing at the end of the day. And then I think the biggest question with Bucky Irving is can his missed tackles forced skill translate? Because Bucky Irving is one of the best broken tackle running backs that I've ever seen from a small stature. And so I want to look at that and take that and push him all the way up to potentially my running back three. But I have a hard time seeing that translate because looking at a player like Achan, it's easy to say this guy is faster than anybody. So I know he's going to be faster than anybody at the next level. But can you still break tackles at a small frame when everybody else is going to be bigger, faster, stronger? That is a hard thing to answer. That said, all these questions with Bucky Irving has kind of taken me away from one of the biggest things, which is that his reception total did jump up quite a bit. and He got up to 56 receptions this year, which is a really good number for a running back. So when you consider his natural pass catching development, the ability to add as a receiver and the ability to be a broken tackles guy, potentially even at his size. Now, maybe he can't be that at the NFL, but just compared to guys his size. Bucky Irving is a very intriguing running back, and that is what gets him up to my running back five. At running back four, 
and I would have never believed that a near 25-year-old running back would have been here. Ray Davis from Kentucky. Ray Davis weighed in at a beefy 220 pounds at 5'8 at the Senior Bowl, meaning he checks some great size boxes. While it has taken me a little while to come around to Ray Davis, Ray Davis is a player that is becoming one of my guys with Malik Washington. Not necessarily saying these are players that I believe will have success at the next level again, but players that I just seem to be really falling in love with, seem to be believing in the narratives surrounding their careers, why it took them so long to get to where they are, and looking at the peak seasons and the peak performances that they had and getting really excited by them. Ray Davis measured in at 5'8 and a half at the Senior Bowl and a beefy 220 pounds. Ray Davis has what you might call a life that ESPN will talk about a lot. I don't want to get into it too much. It's on the Wikipedia page, but suffice to say, his first stop out of high school was to junior college. After junior college, he went up a level at Temple, and then in his second year at Temple, he played only four games, sitting out the rest of the season to preserve a year of eligibility. So, if you're not aware of how the college game works, once you go over four regular season games, you lose a year of eligibility. So, say somebody calls you, not that tampering happens in college football or anything like that. So, say someone calls you or something like that on the phone and says that they're interested in you coming to their school, they might maybe hint that it would be more appealing if you had an extra year of eligibility. And so, you sit out and then next thing you know, you're in the SEC. Now, the Vanderbilt change might have been a very good move in his fourth year, but he got injured in that key fourth year. So the big thing I want to note here to just recap is that in these key third and fourth years of development, when players most often go to the NFL off of, Ray Davis was out for both of them for reasons that were mostly out of his control. Yes, he could have played at Temple. He didn't have to sit, but I I back the reasoning. I back the logic of why he chose to. So after the Vanderbilt injury year, he comes back for Vanderbilt and has a great season for a team that might be the hardest team to have a great season for in the entire college football landscape. Because Vanderbilt is not just a team that isn't a great football program. They're not a great football program in the SEC. That is a really tough place to play. He had 1,000 rushing yards at Vandy, and no other running back on his team had 200. It was also the best year Vanderbilt had for a number of years as they finished 5-7. and seven. Coming off this Vanderbilt year, he catches the eye of Kentucky and transfers over to Kentucky. Now, Kentucky isn't a much better situation in the SEC, but it is a better one. But the most notable thing is that there were players like returning wide receiver Barry and Brown, who's not yet eligible, and incoming quarterback Devin Leary, who had all the hype, or at least in my opinion, or at least from what I saw, had most of the hype coming into the year. But Ray Davis is the one who had it by the end. 1,452 total yards, 21 total touchdowns, Ray Davis was electric all season. Now, again, the big thing I do worry about with his age is that at a very physical position, he is much older than a lot of the players he's playing against. And that is a very relevant concern in my opinion, but it is still a great year overall. And again, a career of which the early years I find to be largely excused. It's also worth noting that over the last two years, he has had 62 receptions. So when you consider those 62 receptions combined with his 220 pounds, that's a very intriguing combination. So Ray Davis is almost 25 years old as of September, at least three months off of it in terms of my age list or the age that I have written down for my notes. But despite that, Ray Davis 
is my running back four. And then last up on this list, the top player on my running back list, at least outside my top two, my running back three, Jalen Wright of Tennessee. Jalen Wright is one of the younger players on this list at 21 years, five months, and one of the younger players overall in my evaluations. With Jalen Wright, it is incredibly simple. I listed two traits to start this podcast, and in my opinion, Jalen Wright's burst is the best on this list. Maybe that's just my eye, maybe that's a mistake in grading from my perspective, but that is my opinion, and that is why I have him so high. One play in particular where this burst can be seen is the 75-yard touchdown run that starts and kicks off the very first play against Georgia this past year. It's not just the fact that he has a great touchdown or that he hits an open hole necessarily, for instance. It's that you can see both safeties, both number 22 and number 23, hesitate with their feet in ways that they think they'll be able to get away with. Maybe they're just having a bad day, but most likely the burst through the hole from Jalen Wright caught them off guard naturally, and that's how you see some of this manipulation of angle. Because ultimately, that's what you're trying to get out of the burst trait. You're trying to get players who manipulate angles or confuse defenders' angles because of how fast they get to a point. You want safeties, for instance, believing that they can get to you at a certain angle, but finding out quickly that they cannot. The biggest problem analytically with Jalen Wright's profile is that, kind of like I talked about earlier with Marshawn Lloyd, Tennessee runs a very rotational running back system. They do this because of the incredibly high pace of play, which is much higher than anything in the NFL. So when you're running up to the line, running the play, running back so quickly, running up to the line again, running the play so quickly again, and over and over and over again, running backs come in and out of the game a lot to make sure that they stay fresh. That said, at the SEC level, Jalen Wright had incredible numbers in terms of efficiency with 137 carries and over 1,000 yards at 1,013. He also chipped in 22 receptions, which shows a bit of a completion to his profile. This year, for the first time, the Senior Bowl was going to allow underclassmen, but unfortunately, Jalen Wright pulled out. That was an event I was really excited to see him in and compare him to some of these other players. I do believe that the Senior Bowl pullout was attributed to some kind of injury, but I'd like to believe that the NFL just likes this guy. Ultimately, I might be overrating the burst trait for Jalen Wright because of the lack of burst in this class, but at 210 pounds, even if he is a little bit lean, he has a lot of the things that I really look for in translatable running backs at this stage of the NFL game and at the NFL level. So because of the traits I look for, Jalen Wright is my running back three. And so, to recap, my top 10 running backs for the first time on this show, running back one, Trey Benson, running back two, Jonathan Brooks, running back three, Jalen Wright, running back four, Ray Davis, running back five, Bucky Irving, running back six, Audric Estime, running back seven, Blake Corum, running back eight, Braylon Allen, running back nine, Marshawn Lloyd, and running back 10, Dylan Lauby. So I do have a couple more running back mentions, just like I had on the wide receiver list. So to get to the guy I want to like the most, that is Rasheen Ali. I really fell in love with his 2021 tape quite a while ago. Great receiving work on that tape. Had some explosive plays even in the kick return game. But he just has not been able to get on the field consistently since then. And his downs have been, frankly, just more often than his ups. He was also at the Senior Bowl, and he tore his bicep, which just continued use this narrative the downs are coming more often than the ups so I feel like I can't sign off on a player based on basically liking his season from two years ago in college but Rasheen Ali is a player I am still 
watching out for. The next three players on the honorable mention list are Blake Watson, Cody Schrader, and Will Shipley. These are three more players that I think could have success at the next level at frankly, all facets of the game. I'm just not particularly high on their ability to do any one thing in particular, I guess. You know, they all showcase different roles and abilities and things that are intriguing, and I wouldn't mind getting them on my NFL team, but I just can't find the thing to set them apart right now. And then I also have a trio of running backs from lower-level schools that I frankly just haven't watched enough yet, and maybe I won't even. You know, Maybe I'll let Draft Capital tell me, unless people really start talking about a couple of these guys. The, the two main ones are, are Jaden Jordan and Isaiah Davis uh, from the FCS level, as well as Kamani Vidal from Troy. And with those final mentions, the running back ranks for this podcast are at an end. And so with that, this show is at an end as well. I have gone back through and listened to the first 65, 67 minutes, and I haven't really found anything to report on here or kind of discuss in a further context. I think that the the main thing still is that these are rankings that, as I've said time and time and time again on this show, are considerably controversial. Not because I think I've taken some kind of controversial stance to arrive them or to get to them, just because by nature, lower tier rankings should be considered controversial. One of the major things I covered on my very first show was the rate of wide receiver busts in the first round between pick 16 and 32, which is a very, very high number. So if the four players I project to potentially go in that range are Keon Coleman, Troy Franklin, Adonai Mitchell, and Brian Thomas Jr., then I should reasonably expect about two of those players to bust at the very least. So if the higher tier is busting at a rate of 50%, most likely when it's all said and done, now maybe that won't happen, but the odds tell us it probably will, then obviously this list that's much lower in the 8 through 15 are going to bust at a fairly high rate. But it's important to talk about these guys. It's important to, you know, get some of this background information in your head. You know, obviously not all these guys are even going to go in the day two range. Some of them are going to go on day three. And most of those guys are going to be round three picks at earliest in the super flex league. And so, you know, there is just a lot to learn still. But at this point, at this time, these are a lot of the players that I've had questions about. And so this kind of gives an idea of where I see these class, this class as a whole at this point between the first show and this show. I don't have any concrete ideas for next week yet. I will throw out the two ideas I have just to see if I get any feedback from them at all or if someone else has an alternative idea but that that wide receiver tier I just talked about uh, Keon Coleman Troy Franklin Adonai Mitchell and Brian Thomas Jr. seems to be a little controversial on an every single player uh, basis so while I did cover them a little bit in the first show I think that's a, a group of four that I can deep dive on for probably an entire episode and there's also you know I, I've never been the biggest fan of comps because I think comps are just another way to create controversy and sometimes not always the best controversy but on that note I have a couple that have been you know burning some ideas in my head or however you want to phrase it some some comps that I've been thinking of um, including one for Roman Wilson and it is not Puka Nakua so that might be something else that I think about slipping into the show next week. Again, if there are any burning questions, I know, you know, don't get me wrong. I know the show doesn't have a big following right now. I know it's a fairly small following. I'm hoping to build that following. But if anybody at all is listening to this and has a burning question, 
just find a way to reach out to me. I usually have multiple Reddit threads a week. You can comment on any of the YouTube videos. You can comment on any of the Substack episodes. And so on one final note, I would like to encourage anyone who has not subscribed to the Substack to do so. It means a lot to me, but regardless, I hope to see you next week.